0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. Here as always with
1: Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Feels like uh, feels like a while since we've done this.
0: That's true. You have been in the Algonquin wilderness. I mean, I know that you pretty much annually like to take a big, ambitious canoe trip in Algonquin Park in Ontario. You did it much later than normal this year, and I think sub-zero temperatures. Uh, what was that experience like?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it is, It you know, it's becoming an annual thing. This is only the second time I've done it, but um, I, I am kind of planning to do it each year at least, uh, at least once. I, I did go to Killarney Provincial Park, actually, rather than Algonquin this time because um, that was the only place where there was uh, an outfitters that would rent a canoe. None of the Algonquin ones uh, seemed to be open. But uh, I'd never been to Killarney before. But two and a half hours, something like that west, uh, southwest of North Bay. So if people know Ontario at all, southwest of Sudbury. Uh, It's very different, you know, the landscape, there's lots of cliffs, more hiking trails than at least the part of Algonquin Park I'm familiar with. Uh, It is true, it's absolutely insane to go in to a provincial park on a canoe trip at this time of year, uh, which is probably why uh, throughout the uh, course of this entire trip, uh, we did not see a single other canoe or tent uh, anywhere in the park. We had, it seemed, like the entirety of Killarney Provincial Park, which is a vast space all to ourselves. We did see like three three people on one of the hiking trails where we decided on the first full day there to leave our campsite and do some hiking up to a vantage point called the crack where there was a a beautiful view and uh, you can walk on that trail. Um, You can walk there from the beginning of the park, from the entrance to the park. So uh, we saw like three people there. Besides that, not a single other soul for days. It was 15 degrees on the day we went in, which was very lucky and uh it was not 15 degrees when we left uh you know uh 4 days later it was uh, closer to minus 15. and i don't think it was quite that cold but yeah it was it was very very cold it's different uh, the, the fire kind of hits different when it's this time of year like it's not like oh you know here's an amusing thing that we can cook marshmallows over it's like we need to keep feeding this or we may die um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It's it's actually, you know, the most dangerous thing about it. I mean, there are bears, but I don't know. One ever sees them. Um, the most dangerous thing about it is that you'll fall in the water. I think that's kind of what I was regret <laughs> or that's kind of what I was uh, worrying about the whole time was like, OK, what if uh, the canoe capsizes and we are like. 15 kilometers over like difficult terrain and more water from I don't know whatever you do <laughs> from from the entrance to the park where that there's actually no one there either um we had polar sleeping blankets or sleeping bags rather uh, like big thick down uh sleeping bags that are good for up to minus 20. I got these like I think they're called bivvies uh, a friend of mine told me about those i Don't really know what they are. They are like these thin little sleeping bags that uh, have like a metallic lining and they can like reflect your body heat or something. So those were kind of like there for an emergency. Didn't end up using them. But uh, yeah, I had just an amazing, uh, an amazing time. I mean, like beautiful space. Uh, It was warm for a couple days or, you know, relatively warm for the season. Covered a huge amount of terrain, scaled some cliffs. I don't know, slept outside, did not think about anything besides you know just how beautiful the landscape was and finding wood for the fire and that kind of thing would highly recommend there's something about i mean i think i'm sure i said this exact same sentence when i came back from algonquin but you know the stereotype with this kind of trip right is that you switch off or you you know you unplug but it's true i mean you just aren't thinking about anything except imminent practical things. And as a result, time really kind of stretches. Like I was only able to be there for four days because it got very cold, but I felt by the time I come out that I'd been there for 10 days or something. So yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome.
0: Well, I'm glad the canoe didn't capsize. That would have caused uh, big problems for my own personal livelihood.
1: Well, except it wouldn't, because you would just keep the brand going, and you'd get you'd get all the Patreon money. Let's not kid ourselves.
0: I'm sure you're feeling very threatened by that solo Patreon episode I did that went so well <laughs> and that really proved the viability of the one-host model.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I listened to that for a few minutes, and uh, I thought uh, I thought this is this is good. You know, a lot of film knowledge and uh, cultural knowledge, you know, amusing kind of guy, but you know, what, what's needed here is some (laughs) kind of, you know, uh, more hard and cerebral kind of political knowledge. And, you know, if, if, if he could find that, then you really have a winning formula here.
0: I mean, some, some would say that it was actually kind of purer. It's like we got rid of like the dead weight that was uh, on the model before and kind of got it to the core essentials, kind of got it back down to what mattered. But, I mean, that's a debate for another day. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that for my part, over the last week, I was uh, in bed with a horrible cold, one of the worst colds I've ever had. It wasn't covid I went out and got tested and everything, but nevertheless, it felt like COVID. I'm still reporting to you from Amsterdam. And before I had the cold, I went and visited the Hague, which is about an hour train ride from Amsterdam. Went to the Mauritshuis Museum. The,
1: the 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 Hague that is for people the who Hague. did not uh, follow Will's uh, pronunciation just now. The the Hague. You went to visit a, what a, 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 a an old woman in the woods with lots of warts. That's what I heard. I visited my wife, folks. My wife. <laughs> Uh, thank you.
0: Uh, no, I went to uh, I went to this wonderful museum where I saw Vermeer's most famous painting, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. And they also had uh-huh. on loan another one of his paintings called Officer and a Laughing Girl. And I'm saying this kind of as a, a coda, a follow-up to our iconic Tim's Vermeer episode, which, you know, listeners will know that was the Penn and Teller documentary that sought to make Vermeer a, a fathomable genius. And I got to say, seeing these two paintings, a girl with the pearl earring an officer and laughing girl you know there are painters from the time who can give you almost as much realism quote unquote as Vermeer does um, obviously his technique is extraordinary like there are there are other painters who who did realism as well but seeing these paintings you know I understand like I didn't when we recorded that episode the sheer extent to which his genius, Lies not just in the technique, but in everything else. Like it lies in the composition. It lies in sort of the mystery of the scenes that he depicts. You know, the girl with the pearl earring, the ambiguous facial expression that she has in Officer and Laughing Girl, just the way that the two bodies are framed in the painting, the sort of ambiguity of the girl's laugh. As she's looking at this officer who's in shadow, who's a much more imposing figure, and the way that the light is drifting into the room. As I said in several episodes, I'm becoming somebody who gets deeply moved at art galleries now, uh, in my old age. And it made me resent that Tim's Vermeer documentary just a little bit more. Uh, you know, given that, like, it seemed only focused on, you know, Penn and Teller or magicians, and they were only focused on the magic trick of how did he make it look so real? But God, there's just a whole other world of stuff happening in those paintings. So, uh... Yeah, if you find yourself in the Hog or the Hague or the or the wherever it is, uh, check out check out Girl with a Pearl Earring. I recommend it. Now, uh, right before Luke went into the wilderness, we made predictions on uh, the U.S. midterms, and actually, uh, the midterms ended up being uh, kind of okay for the Democrats, or certainly not as bad as feared. Uh, so I assume you went to the wilderness out of shame, right? <laughs>
1: Well, I really wish I'd been able to go uh, before the midterms because that would have been fun to come back uh, and be a little bit surprised. Um, Also, it would have been nice to just like not have to watch them or or write about them at all. But
0: the resistance showed up. Hey, the blue wave people, they... They came to the polls this time.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. It's like the Democrats basically do the same strategy uh, every time and like have done so since the Bill Clinton era and then, you know, kind of honed under Rahm Emanuel in the early 2000s. And, you know, most of the time it doesn't work. And sometimes if the Republicans fuck up enough, uh, it does work. I guess this was one of those times. But I mean, when you think about it, they basically did the same thing that Hillary, that lost Hillary Clinton the election in 2017. 16 they were like let's bank it all on normal let's use the resources of the democratic party and you know the kind of vast asked- like sprawling apparatus of, um, you know, corporate dark money in alliance with it, in partnership with it. Let's use that to boost the furthest right, like most insane candidates possible. And we'll just trust, you know, like the white moderate in the suburbs of Philadelphia or whatever to deliver. And uh, didn't work in 2016, (laughs) um, you know, didn't work in 2014, didn't work in 2012 or 2010 it kind of worked in 2018 although they didn't you know they didn't take back the senate and this time uh well uh it worked in the sense that they still lost the house of representatives but not by not as much as some were predicting and um looks like they may actually gain a seat in the senate courtesy of john fetterman flipping pennsylvania over the truly abominable dr oz who i uh, gotta say i still only faintly know is like a guy who oprah made who's kind of uh a crank. I. This is one of the consequences, uh, maybe positive consequences, of growing up without a TV. Growing up uh, rural. I mean, I know who Dr. Oz is, obviously, but I have like no. I never watched Dr. Oz as a kid. Yeah. Um, I watched him in that debate with Fetterman, and he seems like a truly awful guy.
0: When I was a kid, the big Oprah discovery was Dr. Phil. He's the one I saw on TV a lot. I think Dr. Oz is a little bit after my time.
1: Well, unclear what's going to happen with this uh, Georgia runoff. I mean, conventional wisdom would be, you know, almost a shoe-in for Raphael Warnick. Uh, but who knows? Um, maybe maybe Herschel Walker can pull it off. Uh, <laughs> we'll know soon enough. I mean, there's several analyses I've read of the uh, of the midterms, and I, I think that probably the best way to understand what happened is that a lot of the things that I said about what the Democrats were doing wrong before the midterms, I mean, it kind of applies to the Republicans. The Democrats did not seem to be running or I, I mean, I think this is still the case. Um, I mean, they did not have any kind of strong uh, economic argument, despite there being record inflation. You know, they were leading with, uh, you know, democracy and America is on the ballot and all this kind of stuff. And for that reason, I thought that, you know, the Republicans who are running a lot more ads on, um, you know, economic things and just by virtue of like the inertia you get being the opposition party in this economic climate, you know, I figured that should be enough for the Republicans to take back the House. The thing is, uh, the Republicans did run those ads, and then they also talked about a lot of other stuff that is the weird, freakish stuff that, you know, the Republican base cares about. So, you know, when there's record inflation, I don't know, they're going door to door. They're like canvassers are going door to door talking to like confused suburbanites about like a drag time story hour in Oakland or San Francisco or something. You know, I think that's kind of what happened. I think another part of the equation is that. Uh, Like I know obviously Trump was out there to stump for a whole bunch of these candidates, but you know, Trump not being the president anymore is not really, he's not as central to uh, the Republican party as he was before, you know, obviously when he was president. And so I, I kind of think that the midterms are a test of what happens when you do Trumpism in a way that is at least somewhat removed from the personal idiosyncrasies and you know bizarre rhetoric and just the personality of Donald Trump uh, himself. And that formula is a lot closer to just conventional Republicanism, at least you know as I've known it for most of my life. And I don't really think it works.
0: We're seeing a lot of wishful thinking that this is the time of Ron DeSantis now, that Trump is all washed up. He's a spent force after this. He obviously announced that he's running in the next election officially. And th- the reviews of his speech were, were kind of like Ali's last couple of fights, you know, didn't quite have the same pep and verve, but you don't seem very convinced that he really is a spent force.
1: No, I don't think so at all. I think the, the speech was definitely very low energy. And I mean, I think it, it was, I mean, it's it was one of Trump's, Trump's uh, worst speeches, I would say, and I think it was sort of pretty visibly ridden through with pettiness and resentment and not like the kind of pettiness that donald trump is able to wield effectively but a sort of like wounded and offended kind of pettiness i think the fact that he did the speech from florida is not a good sign i mean it speaks to how much of this is like it is just being driven by his personal beefs and and kind of imperatives and i actually think that was the weakest thing about the speech and it's the weakest thing about trumpism at the moment as Presently constituted because since 2020, so much of the energy of Trumpism, the Trumpist movement, whatever you want to call it, you know, it was obviously always a personality call to round Trump himself. You know, the the language of kind of modern conservatism, the style of modern conservatism now in the United States, at least, um, and to some extent abroad as well, is in many ways inextricable from the personality of Donald Trump himself, and that has been politically effective. Uh, At certain times, you know, certainly more than much of the American pundit class and national media believed would be the case. The trouble is since 2020, so much of that has just been about how they stole the election. Folks, they stole the election. They took it. They took it from us and you know obviously there are diehard MAGA people I mean we watched the stupid D'Souza what is it the 2000 mules you know there's people or was it three? I can't remember how many mules uh, okay okay
0: but did you see the footage <laughs> in that I mean that was that was really eye opening
1: yeah I mean it's pretty it's pretty alarming to see people putting things in mailboxes um, it's uh yeah we're through the looking glass here people um but no I mean they've been talking about this shit for two years they were talking about it in the lead up to the midterms like they're going to steal the election and it's pure like loser mindset and it sounds like the kind of thing that uh, losers do because it is. Uh, I mean, when Democrats had to invent some kind of like, Donald Trump didn't uh, actually, you know, win the Electoral College, Uh, he was uh, a Manchurian candidate uh, who was part of a 30-year plan by the former KGB agent uh, turned Russian President Vladimir Putin to steal American democracy by posting a muscly Bernie Sanders. Loser mindset, pathetic, bad. And this is the Republican equivalent of that. I mean, it's easy to forget now because Donald Trump very quickly, you know, who'd have thought, uh, just morphed into a pretty typical Republican president in terms of the things he was actually doing, you know, tax cuts for zillionaires and uh, destroying regulations and stuff like that. But the initial appeal of Trumpism, or at least part of the initial appeal, came from the fact that it was, you know, ideologically dexterous, or at least rhetorically dexterous in a way that, you know, Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush led Republican Party was not. Um, you know, Trump was going to Midwestern states and talking about how NAFTA was bad. And he was talking about how elites were bad and he was fighting, uh, he was fighting Republican elites. And guess what? No one likes those people, so it worked. And, you know, Trumpism has steadily moved away from that kind of thing and towards just whining about how they took, they took the election from us. And that was kind of just radiating off um, this speech Trump gave, and it was not as effective as a result. Having said all that, though, I mean, I just think pretending like Trumpism is a spent force is ridiculous. The idea that Donald Trump is now going to fight some kind of competitive primary against like Ron DeSantis or something, I think it's ridiculous. It's two kinds of wish fulfillment coming together. Okay, it's the wish fulfillment of, you know, the type of liberal who has existed in vast numbers since 2015, 2016, where, you know, for them, what they want more than anything is just like a return to, you know, politics before Donald Trump. So if they'd have got a 2016 election between Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, they would have thought, you know, fuck, I wish I could just vote for both of these crazy kids. They would have been happy to live in that world. So that's one thing. And there are people like I've seen this in the wild, people who actually think, you know, well, hey, Ron DeSantis is actually just like a respectable interlocutor we could we could deal with. Imagine if the Republican Party went back to that. So there's a certain amount of wish fulfillment there. And then on the other side, you know, there's the wish fulfillment of Republican elites who, you know, really just do want Trumpist policies, uh, but they don't want to have Donald Trump because he's a liability. He's too mercurial. Like, There is a risk that he will do things that they don't like or that they find embarrassing. And for, you know, uh, the conservative public intellectuals, especially and a few other parts of uh, what calls itself the conservative movement, you know, those people, I think, really still are resentful that, you know, they spent 50 years or something since Barry Goldwater got thrashed by Lyndon Johnson and William F. Buckley, you know, got 19 percent in the New York mayoral election. You know, they spent like 50 years, more than 50 years figuring out a way that they can just do the same type of politics, but, you know, have it be more respectable, have a type of language, have a type of affect, um, you know, usually involving a bow tie that they can kind of like sell to their liberal friends through publications like National Review or The Federalist or whatever. A conservatism which is respectable, uh, which is, you know, in a public facing way is ostensibly rooted in some kind of, you know, grand ancient tradition that goes back to the founders, yada, yada, yada. You know, it's all bullshit. But the, p- these people, People are very heavily invested for, you know, personal reasons and for ideological reasons, you know, in conservatism, having that kind of face rather than the face of Donald Trump. Now, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but one of the things that makes me think that Donald Trump is absolutely not a spent force is that I feel like we're already just doing a repeat of uh, 2016. It's already (laughs) happening, folks. In 2016, uh, what did all of the vehicles that were ostensibly leading American conservatism do? They all said no to Donald Trump absolutely not. We need a John Kasich or Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush or whatever. One of those organs was the National Review, which published its famous Never Trump issue where people like, you know, Irving Kristol and I don't know, the other supposed heavy hitters of American conservatism. I think Joni Goldberg was in there, a few others. uh, They came out and they said to uh, conservative voters, Republican voters, don't vote for Donald Trump. He's bad. And uh, nobody cared. And I was very amused uh, for this reason to find five days ago in, the, in not under the National Review, I think this is their cover editorial and it's just like Trump, no. The editorial's just called no. And I wanna just read a little bit from this. Now, I'm gonna read this to you and after I'm done, you tell me that Donald Trump is a spent force. So the editorial begins, um, you know, this is the National Review, so what? Do, what else do you expect? To paraphrase Voltaire after, after he attended an orgy, once was an experiment, twice would be perverse. A bruised Donald Trump announced a new presidential bid on Tuesday night, an invitation to double down on the outrages and failures of the last several years that Republicans should reject without hesitation or doubt. So you hear that? Republicans should reject Trumpism without hesitation or doubt. Anyway, let's see what the next paragraph has in store. To his credit, Trump killed off the Clinton dynasty in 2016, nominated and got confirmed three constitutionalist justices, reformed taxes, pushed deregulation, got control of the border, significantly degraded ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and cinched normalization deals between Israel and the Gulf states, among other things. Uh, These are achievements that even his conservative doubters and critics, including the National Review, can acknowledge and applaud. And then, um, I don't think I actually need to read anymore, but it goes on, you know, that said, the Trump administration was chaotic, even on its best days is, because of his erratic nature and lack of seriousness. So basically they say absolutely no to Donald Trump and then they just list off like all the things Trump actually did and they're like, well, that's great. (laughs) So that's, you know, the National Review saying no to Donald Trump. Now, the one difference between this and, uh, you know, the shit they were doing in 2016 is in 2016, you know, if you go back and read what they actually said, like I remember at the time, liberal websites, like the Huffington Post and stuff, like curating these lists of like, read the ten and best dunks from the National Review's epic takedown of Donald Trump. And you actually read the editorial and it's like, everything they're saying is that Donald Trump is actually like a crypto leftist. Like he's, a tra- he's attacking free trade deals, folks. That's terrible. We can't trust this guy to cut taxes. And like, he says that he wants to deport a zillion people and be racist with border policies. But can we really believe that? You know, he's from New York. And in this one, they're sort of doing a like, well, got to hand it to him. (laughs) (laughs) he, He did everything we want and we're still not happy because he's like kind of erratic. So what if Ron DeSantis could do it instead? Anyway, if the National Review is against Trump, that tells me that there's uh, a lot of life in Trumpism yet. Uh, I saw that Chris Christie is uh, thinking about a presidential run. God, I hope so. <laughs> Fucking let's bring them all back. Let's get somebody to talk Jeb out of retirement. <laughs> like, let's get the let's get the band back together. Like, can you imagine if we get another ostensibly competitive Republican primary where Donald Trump, you know, just I don't know, insults like jeb bush's wife or something
0: you know trump's back on twitter now uh or his account has been reinstated at least and you know i was reminded sadly that so much of his good material is from before 2016 partly it was because he wasn't in the same position that he was after
1: (laughs) that shit that shit where he just spent like several weeks trying to convince robert pattinson (laughs) to break up with kirsten stewart that was
0: incredible oh my god
1: (laughs) Although I think it was while while he was president that he was who is whose Oscar parties did he kept tweeting about how they're no longer hot. It was a uh,
0: Vanity Fair editor, Graydon Carter,
1: <laughs> so, or, or or sissy
0: Graydon Carter as as he is now known. But yeah, he doesn't have that Rose Gallery anymore, which is a shame. And I actually for the next stage of Trump in public life, what I would like is for you know, like Chris Christie, I'd like for more people from his inner circle to try to like you know, be turncoats to try to like be Benny Blanco from the Bronx and try to usurp
1: him. Like Mike Pence will run against him, Libs will cheer and then Trump will just like make a single joke about him getting hanged on stage or something and just the base will love it. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, more of that. This should be Trump version 2.0.
1: Now we can move on from this for a second. I mean, we should move on because we've got a very substantive movie where I know there's going to be a lot to talk about for this episode. But I, I think it's worth uh, saying a little bit about Ron. DeSantis here, because the other part of this equation is Ron DeSantis, and Ron DeSantis sucks, okay? Like, one of the worst ticks of pundit brain is taking a single election and blowing it up into, like, some kind of long-term trend, right? Obviously, you can interpret election results in various ways. Sometimes people can even do so, you know, very wisely. It's rare, but it does occasionally happen. But I'm talking here about the types of prognostications like in 2008, Obama's victory heralding permanent demographic doom for the Republican Party. The Republican Party was never going to be able to even probably take back the House of Representatives again because they're a permanent minority party and Obama had built an impregnable coalition. So that lasted uh, 18 months or something until the Republicans uh, won one of the biggest midterm victories uh, ever, I believe, in the 2010 midterms. There are so many things like this. I mean, similarly, you go over to the right, and you know, Donald Trump makes like modest inroads with people of color in a few elections, and they're like, oh, uh, actually. Hispanics are gonna be like the future of the Republican Party and then we're gonna have an unstoppable coalition because a few more Hispanic voters voted red this time. All all that kind of thing is bullshit. I mean, a lot of it is just like party spin and hype that then like pundits actually take seriously and they buy into, you know, pollsters who, you know, think what they do is ideologically neutral, that there's just these dispassionate observers who deal with numbers, but then, you know, they're more liberally inclined or they're more conservatively inclined and, you know, they bend the numbers around that. All of which is to say, you know, the midterms were a surprise. I mean, they did defy the polls somewhat, but like, let's not get carried away here. Suggesting that the Republican Party is, you know, permanently crippled or is crippled even in the medium term, I think is very foolish. Suggesting that the midterms are a referendum on Trumpism and Trumpism is, you know, dead as a result, or suggesting that Ron DeSantis winning this big victory in Florida portends some kind of like DeSantisism going national. I just don't believe. I mean, DeSantis is like what, like, what if you had Donald Trump and it was just not fun? <laughs> like, there's no fun. There's no humor. It kind of like throws red meat to the Republican base, but in this more upright kind of way. He's closer to being a conventional Republican in terms of style or whatever. I'm just not convinced that that is an exportable commodity nationally at all. And I'm certainly not convinced that a DeSantis versus Trump contest is going to result in anything other than Donald Trump winning again. There's a guy called Nate Watchman, who's a staff writer at the National Review, who's a kind of um, young conservative wunderkind, who I follow, because it's interesting to see what the younger part of the conservative movement are thinking. He wrote a piece called Why Ron DeSantis Can't Break From Trump Yet. And one of the things he said is, one of the reasons Trump's base adores him is that he overcame overwhelming odds, including both party establishments to win. The more Republican elites consolidate against him, the more otherwise persuadable Trump voters are going to remember why they loved him in the first place. I think that's a good observation. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Nate, Nate Hawkman. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. So, Nate, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, um, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name. But, you know, uh, Nate Hodgman was, you know, against Donald Trump back in uh, 2016. I think, you know, like a lot of conservatives, he sort of accommodated himself to Donald Trump. You know, I think the subtext here and what I read from his piece on this, you know, is that he would probably kind of like, you know, to move on from Donald Trump. He'd, He'd probably like a conservative movement or, you know, a Republican political project that wasn't entirely inextricable from Donald Trump. But he's right to observe here that, you know, this is one of the main reasons why Donald Trump's base is so loyal is because of the trajectory he took to get there. Um, And when I see publications like the National Review, when I see, I mean, this is, you know, Nate was responding to uh, something Mike Pompeo said, where Pompeo said, we were told we'd get tired of winning, but I'm tired of losing and so are most Republicans. So it's all these, you know, former Trump allies jumping what they think of as a sinking ship. I saw Nikki Haley had some kind of subtweet of Donald Trump, all these kind of former sycophants, you know, these obsequious twerps pretending to get off the Trump train or trying to get off the Trump train. And I just think it's going to backfire. I mean, I would be astonished if someone like Ron DeSantis can beat Donald Trump in the Republican primary. So you can all bookmark this and, uh, you know, in two years, you can make me eat my words or you can make me sound like a prophet. I hope someone does that. But I, I don't know. I feel pretty confident in that prediction. If Donald Trump wants to be the Republican nominee in 2024, he almost certainly can be.
0: On February 20th, meet the people of Mooseport. The plumber. I'm running for the mayor of Mooseport. The ex-president. I'm running for mayor against the man installing my toilet. Ugh. The ex-wife.
1: Come on, I know you're there.
0: The Girlfriend. You really actually like this guy? Well, then why are you wearing black underwear? What difference does it make? It's an unconscious indicator of your subconscious intentions. Uh-huh. Welcome to Mooseport. Rated PG-13. February 20th. Well, our movie on this episode is, uh, hang on, let me get my notes, which I didn't write for this movie. Uh, 2004's Welcome to Mooseport. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: the- <laughs> uh it, it is. oh man Th- this this one was brutal folks i i'm just gonna i'm gonna interrupt will just to say that um this is one of the flattest movies we have ever watched for this podcast this is a movie that is so bad um <laughs> that it it makes john stewart's irresistible look like terence malick there is nothing in this movie and i'm actually i mean will and i have done the impossible on this podcast in the past. But I am not sure there is any water we can squeeze from this stone. I think that this movie may be even beyond our abilities to interpret. It is a void with no end. And you stare into it, it stares right back at you. There is nothing there. Well, I don't
0: necessarily disagree with anything you say. Although I do disagree with your negatively comparing it to John Stewart's irresistible. Needless to say, I also thought of irresistible while watching this movie. they they <laughs> they share some thematic similarities. but uh, I like this movie a little bit more than irresistible, I think. it's it's the termite art irresistible. It's uh it's a little bit less full of itself that irresistible is. I mean, th- folks, this this is a bad movie. Don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> but but wh- when I, when, I, I,
1: when 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 we heard that uh, there was a movie with Ray Romano and Gene Hackman about an election in small town America that had thirteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes, we thought, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, and I mean, <laughs> it sounds like Will like this movie more than I did, but uh, I actually will go out on a limb and say I vastly preferred. Jon Stewart's irresistible to this. I would much rather be subjected, bludgeoned with just cloying liberal smugness and just being patronized. And whatever the fuck the thesis of that movie is, politics is made up uh, in small town America. It's imposed from without by Washington elites like activists from Black Lives Matter, uh, which is apparently the message of the, the only way I could interpret one of the the shots towards the end of that film, I would much rather be subjected to that, as awful as it was, than this, which is basically just like a completely bird-brained rom-com, absolutely nothing going on in it, the satire of nothing in particular. Anyway, it sounds like Will and I have the most incendiary conflict between the two of us (laughs) um, since we discussed... Adam McKay's Vice. So actually, maybe Irresistible was onto something. You know, like America, the Michael and Us podcast is uh, reaching a point of polarization from which there may be no return.
0: I'm glad that you preferred Irresistible because maybe this will give us like some way into this movie. Like I'm imagining myself over your campfire in the non-Algonquin wilderness, trying to rub two sticks together to get some fire. <laughs> I feel like that's what we might be doing with our non-disagreement over this movie. But I do think it's. Worth- Worth leaning into. Um, i Well, okay. So for the first second of this movie, my blood went cold because I saw a film by Donald Petrie, and you know, as a, <laughs> as a cinephile, as a man with a degree in film studies, the name Donald Petrie is familiar to me. Uh, he made Richie Rich. Uh, he made, uh, I mean, that's the
1: one I recognized his
0: name from, but, uh, he- al-
1: I loved Richie Rich as a kid, like the Macaulay Culkin one, you mean.
0: Correct. He made My Life in Ruins <laughs> with Niavardalos, which I saw when I was a gigging alt-weekly film critic as a young man. I think I was, I was 20 when I saw that. Miss Congeniality is one of his more successful movies. Grumpy Old Men with, uh, Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau. Those are some of the better known ones. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, his is a filmography of- stunning and consistent banality um <laughs> you, you don't you don't typically get a film like usually somebody like create something with a little edge even if just by accident but not this guy. What, what was
1: the what was the plot of Miss Congeniality the conflict in that movie was that Sandra Bullock like she's a she's a badass cop but then she has to do a beauty pageant for some reason that's
0: correct and that's one of the true classics of the very attractive actress wears glasses and then she takes off her glasses and all of a sudden you know she, <laughs> oh whoa she's she's actually really hot you know that genre <laughs> uh, so I will again. <laughs> I consult my notes about Welcome to Mooseport, uh, and I see that I've written down, cast your ballots for big laughs when Gene Hackman and Ray Romano (laughs) find themselves in a hilariously heated race for mayor of Mooseport, Maine. A local plumber, Romano, is plunged into the national spotlight when he takes on the former president of the United States, Hackman, who can't believe he's running against the man installing his toilets. Whoever wins, one thing's for sure— This town isn't small enough for the both of them. Uh, And one additional note is thumbs up. A very good time. Roger Ebert, Ebert and (laughs) Roker.
1: Okay, we're going to we're going to get to Ebert because I think maybe we should read. Isn't there's a particularly smooth brained Roger Ebert review of this movie. (laughs) He gave it three stars, three stars, folks. I think we should save that for the end as a little treat uh, so that, you know, the prophet can explain to us why we're wrong to trash. uh, Welcome to Mooseport.
0: I also just want to point out that the back of the DVD box advertises some special features: interactive menus. No, listen to this: a full-length audio commentary by director Donald Petrie. Now, can you oh imagine what a what a masterclass? I mean, could you like people people pay a hundred thousand dollars for two years of film study at NYU just to get that kind of expertise, and you can get it on the DVD for Welcome to Mooseport.
1: Can, can I just say that that description that you read? I'm not sure what that was from but that's not actually the plot of the movie like what that is is a sort of meta translation of the plot into some kind of like you know marketing spin that makes the movie sound like it's about you know this like competitive election between these two unlikely candidates and like that's kind of what the movie's about but one of the reasons this movie doesn't work is because neither of the candidates ray romano or gene hackman wants to be mayor of mooseport like it doesn't make any sense the central conflict of the movie, like, there's no conflict. There's no tension. It doesn't work. Like, the Ray Romano character, his entire arc is that, you know, his, his girlfriend is, like, he's going to get cucked by Gene Hackman. Well, ha- hang so- on.
0: We we really should be describing the plot. We should be summarizing what the plot <laughs> actually is, because I agree with you about this. It, it is set in Mooseport, Maine, and I do want to point out that uh, small-town Ontario is playing the United States in this movie.
1: Yes, this is Port Perry, where, in fact, I was... Uh, just a few months ago. How
0: about that? I mean, you. I bet you wish you went now. <laughs> little did so. I
1: know that I was on the set of Welcome to Mooseport.
0: I mean, I'm sure they have a tour that you can take. I'm sure there are plaques around town, like probably, you know, the hardware store and the, you know, the gazebo and other, <laughs> other sites of interest. You
1: can stand in like the puddle where Ray Romano gets his shoes dirty at the end. Like there's a little plaque that says Ray Romano is here.
0: So uh, Gene Hackman is the president and I'm, and I'm not going to look up what these characters are named. It really doesn't matter. Gene Hackman is the president. Oh, by the way, of interest is that this is Gene Hackman's last movie. He retired after this film. <laughs> yeah. He's still alive. He's in his 90s, but he retired after this and shows no signs of wanting to work again. I mean, the Royal <laughs> Tenenbaums was what, like two years before this? What a what a perfect swan song that would have been. Yeah, he but...
1: wanted to go out on a high note. I mean, Royal <laughs> Tenenbaums is kind of like a math film and, you know, this film, it's got a lot on its mind, but it's also got a lot of heart. And I don't think he saw the need to act after that.
0: Well said. Um, so he is the president of the United States. We've been told that he was an extremely popular president. He had something like 80% approval ratings. We don't know what party he was from. I would I would imagine Republican, but, you know, that's not spelled out. Uh, and now he's transitioning into what promises to be a lucrative post-presidential career. He has offers lined up, the speaking circuit, a $14 million advance for his memoir, And he's moved to this small town after an acrimonious divorce from his gold-digging harpy of a wife... (laughs) Uh, who who has taken over their Washington estate.
1: Yeah, the most important part of his arc is that uh, his wife, folks, his ex-wife, she's freaking crazy, and she's out to get him. She's out to get his money. Women be gold digging.
0: Yeah, Sad but true. But anyway, he's a good guy, and he's actually happy at his country home in Mooseport. He doesn't mind giving up the glitz and glamour of Washington as long as he gets a big infusion of cash into his bank account from speaking engagements and his autobiography. That's a bit of inconsistency in his character he's got a bit of a angel on his right shoulder devil on his left shoulder with regards to uh, greed and uh, material wealth
1: the film does not i mean perhaps there's just too many levels for me and i'm not i'm missing something but the film i feel like does not establish gene hackman as a character very well at all like it sets him up as this like hugely popular ex-president like the most popular former president in history and I don't know, it kind of shows him as, like, nice enough, but he basically just seems like any kind of hack politician. Like, to, at the beginning of the film, he moves into the house, and his advisors, one of whom is uh, Fred Savage, uh, former child actor Fred Savage, the, the Princess Bride, and the Molle. Wizard, and yes, of course, whatever Austin Molle, Powers Molle, Molle, was... Molle, Molle, Molle. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely one of the better jokes in that very funny trilogy of films. Anyway, Fred Savage, no relation, is um, you know, listing off all these things he can do. And it's just like he's doing car commercials, he's getting like a multi-million dollar uh, advance. Uh, correction,
0: for... he declines the car commercials because he thinks that's beneath the dignity of the office. Fred Savage is pushing him to do car commercials, but that's like, come on, this this guy this guy's better than that. He want, He's doing speaking tours. He's doing memoirs.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It hardly sounds like, you know, Jimmy Carter, like, uh, trying to eliminate diseases or whatever, but, you know.
0: But, no, you're right. I mean, there is a problem in how the Gene Hackman character is set up, because what this movie should be is a Jimmy Carter-like president who has heretofore made it through a very busy public life pretty much untainted. And now, you know, he gets into small town politics by accident, basically, and becomes everything he once despised. But the movie fumbles that in the introductory scenes by showing him being like, okay, let's cash in on my post presidency, establishing him off the bat as a very cynical politician. and so his evolution really has nowhere to go after that.
1: Well, I, I just want to say that is an incredibly generous reading of the Jimmy Carter presidency. But I agree with your basic point. This character does not really make any sense. And uh, yeah, his whole, like the only salient character point with the Gene Hackman guy, who I think is named Cole, President Cole, is that his ex-wife uh, is a gold digger. And uh, that's, that's about it. Now, he
0: goes to Mooseport expecting to, you know, cash in on his presidency, uh, live a pleasant life in retirement. But the town's long-serving mayor has just died, has just died on the eve of nominations being due for the election. And there's no bench. There's nobody here to replace him. So the town fathers, including Wayne Robson of Cube and uh, the Red Green Show fame, uh, <laughs> says to him, Mr. President... Will you become the mayor of our town? Now, this would seem beneath him, but in fact, President Hackman considers it. He says, you know, that would be interesting from a branding perspective. As I launch this this new post-presidential phase, I'll be able to show the world that I care so much about public duty that even though this is beneath (laughs) me, uh, I'm doing this largely ceremonial job that I won't have to work at and I can cash in even more. So his motivation it doesn't are, make yeah, any sense. Why he is he? Po- why is he so popular? He's a completely cynical hack who's cashing in. The only way this premise would actually work is if he wanted to get into public life again to do the right thing, right? Like, imagine how much better this great movie would be if he joined the mayoral race because he wanted to make a difference in the small town, and then. Over the course of the movie, he gets corrupted and he keeps bringing bad Washington values in get Donald Petrie on the phone because I know I know he's a Hollywood veteran but I have I have some notes
1: I think this is a point to me because I think you've just inadvertently conceded that Irresistible is a better movie
0: I mean maybe uh, I'll just say that I hated looking at Irresistible I hated being in Irresistible they're both bad movies so I'll take the one that's a little cozier <laughs> I'll take the one with Gene Hackman in it <laughs>
1: <laughs> and It is And it is pretty cool when Gene Hackman takes off his glasses and he's actually really hot oh hubba hubba the the same applies the same we're saying here applies to the ray romano character as well because his arc also makes no sense like the whole premise of the movie at least as established in that publicist summary that you read us earlier is that like these two unlikely uh, zany characters face off in you know, a small town election. And like that's not really what happens at all because Gene Hackman is only doing this cynically and neither is Ray Romano. And then the only reason Ray Romano decides to run is because he sees Gene Hackman making a pass at his girlfriend.
0: Okay, so what people need to know is that Ray Romano is the local handyman. In this small town, he is the plumbing king, but he's also a bit of a workaholic plumber. His girlfriend of six years played by Maura Tierney is tired of constantly being second place for whatever toilet he has to repair. Now, Ray Romano also catches wind of this vacant seat in Town Hall, and he he too thinks, I'll do the town a favor. I'll I'll run and be mayor. Why not? He's going to withdraw when he finds out that Gene Hackman has also put his name in. But yes, as you point out, during this very difficult time in his relationship, uh, Gene Hackman unknowingly asks Maura Tierney on a date, and she accepts so Ray Romano realizes he has to man up. He's, he's going to run for mayor against the former president. And the two of them together have a very acrimonious campaign that... Uh, becomes a subject of national media fascination that sees the infusion of enormous money, that sees an elite Washington insider strategist played by the great Rip Torn come in on Gene Hackman's team, sees some of the worst excesses of D.C.-style politics, mudslinging, rumor-mongering, that sort of thing, brought into small-town America. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what can you say?
1: Can I, can I just say something about that particular trope, which like I don't know if I'm, we're talking about this film anymore or if this is just a, like another point about irresistible or if I'm just attacking a piece of conventional wisdom that's always annoyed me and I think is completely not true. The idea that small town politics is somehow immune to partisanship and pettiness, it's somehow distant from the, the rancor and, you know, petty squabbling one associates with Washington. Has anybody ever like followed politics in a small town? Like it has the dynamic or, you know, it can have the dynamic that's typical of like when any small amount of power, you know, is up for grabs. Often in an environment where, you know, the majority of people are not really paying attention. You know, the worst of small town politics is kind of like the worst of, you know, student politics or something.
0: This is why Alexander Payne's Election is one of the best movies ever made about politics.
1: One hundred percent. Another movie I wish I'd watched again rather than watching this piece of crap.
0: Whenever we've talked about movies like this in the past, like My Fellow Americans with Jack Lemmon, which uh, I did look up to see if that was directed by Donald Petrie, but it wasn't. <laughs> 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 We've typically interrogated what are the sort of ideological assumptions that these movies are built on. And I, I it will be hard with this one, but I guess one of the assumptions here is that there is a dichotomy between the local and the urban or or the local and the cosmopolitan. Also, even though like the Gene Hackman character is supposed to be the greatest president ever, there's an assumption that like, ultimately he's a different breed of person, you know, the, the sort of person who like makes politics their life and career is different. And like the life of a politician or, or a life of like civic engagement is not a place for like a normal person, like a, a guy like Ray Romano.
1: Here's something else about the plot. And, you know, I don't know, maybe the director's commentary explains this, but uh, the film does absolutely nothing to establish what Gene Hackman's connection to Mooseport, Maine actually is. Why does he have a house here? We know that his his crazy... Hysterical ex-wife has taken away their home in Baltimore, I think it is. What is his connection to Mooseport? He says something at the beginning when he's talking to you know the townsfolk or whatever. Who again, he does not seem very happy to like schmooze with the locals. He doesn't actually want to be there. Again, the character doesn't make any sense at all. He's like bartering with his advisors about how long he's going to have to stay and like be in the company of these you know lowly peasants in uh, in rural Maine. But he says something to them to the effect of, you know, oh, uh, I wasn't able to visit Mooseport when I was president. Uh, so what What are we supposed to believe here? Like he had a country house here that he didn't visit while he was president, maybe visited before. Like, I mean, fuck, like just spitballing here. Like there are any number of backstories that would at least have some kind of coherence that you could do something with in a movie like this. Like. What if Gene Hackman was a small town guy who rose to be president and he kind of left his life behind and then he comes back to the town where I don't know he went to high school, had his first kiss or something, you know, had all his like formative uh, moments of his youth and now he has to, you know, overcome his yeah, you know, Washington pretension or something. What if Ray Romano's girlfriend was his high school sweetheart or something? and like the conflict in the movie came from that. I mean, Donald Patrick, are
0: you listening?
1: (laughs) Good God. It's not just that there's nothing, there's no satire in this movie. It's that the basic mechanics of it don't even work in like a hack way. What was the other stupid movie, uh, the Jack Lemmon one that you just mentioned before? Uh,
0: My Fellow Americans.
1: I barely remember that movie. I remember there were two ex-presidents, they're on a plane crash together or something and they have to go off and do hijinks. There's a part where they're on the train. That was a way better movie than this. I mean, a oh, lot of movies are I bad. don't know
0: about that. Come on.
1: <laughs> that was a pretty may bad be, movie. <laughs> I Maybe it was... <laughs> yeah, it fucking sucked, man, obviously. But I, I feel like the basic mechanics of this... I feel like this movie is kind of breaking new ground uh, to some extent in the Michael and us corpus because I feel like just on a really basic level, none of the basic foundations of this movie work at all. Like you can have hack foundations that are trite and cliche, but are at least sort of internally consistent with one another. This movie has none of that. Like, the basic character points of each of the character. like, fuck, if you sit down for script writing 101 and they tell you, you know, uh, okay, establish three character points for each of your lead characters, they would tell you that those character points need to be internally consistent. And they're not. Like, nothing about this movie works.
0: Okay, well, for our purposes, I actually think this is what's interesting about this movie, if anything is. Yes. Like, the Gene Hackman character, he's not, like, in My Fellow Americans the two presidents were clearly based more or less on real presidents. Like the James Garner president was Bill Clinton, for example. But in this movie... Gene Hackman is all presidents. He's like this algorithmically generated collection of stereotypes and traits and tropes that we associate with presidents from the last 60 years. Like he's both a Jimmy Carter like good guy and a Bill Clinton like cynic who's cashing in on his post-presidency. He's the great communicator like Reagan, like Bush, he's somebody who alleged allegedly has ties to you know smaller more rural areas that he likes to go to but uh but also like bush he's kind of a fraud there's no real proof that he actually does have ties to those areas the movie can't commit to anything because like you know this movie is the middle of the middle of the middle this this is a movie that was designed and machine tooled to sort of appeal to the largest number of people it possibly could and ironically it didn't appeal to anybody because of that Uh, But in so doing, it just creates a president that has got something everybody can agree on in it. He's all presidents. One more thing I want to say about this movie, uh, not in its defense, but just as something I I found interesting about it is, you almost never see movies anymore that are this lame. This movie is...
1: I In an age even... of polarization, no one is making Welcome to Mooseport.
0: The, like the the Judd Apatow style has basically become default. You know, like you look at movies now and it's like, people are riffing. People, like alt comedy has become mainstream. You watch a Star Wars movie and it's like, um, they fly now. Yeah, they fly now. You know, Marvel movies have soy banter. Yeah,
1: uh, the new scarier Death Star like blows up an entire planet. And you know, some character goes um that's not good like who's
0: hosting the oscars now it's not billy crystal anymore it's amy schumer you know the mainstream has shifted away from this i think the only place where you see movies this lame anymore is the hallmark channel during christmas like hallmark (laughs) christmas movies are still this lame but that's become something else that's become its own niche area You don't see this kind of movie, this kind of just, like, completely edgeless, nothing to grasp onto
1: comedy anymore, like, in the mainstream. Here's a question, then, uh, that I'd like to pose to the listeners. I think Will and I are actually developing—I mean, I I was joking, like, a minute ago about, like, in an age of polarization, you don't get welcome to Mooseport. But I actually think that's true in a very real sense, because— Culture and cultural consumption have become very polarized in a big way. That's actually what polarization refers to more than ideological difference, I think, in in many areas, at least. But it, you know in the same way that you know now you have Fox and MSNBC like I think that you have you know the Hunter Biden movie and Irresistible and I don't know we're we're interested in shit that sucks on this podcast we're interested in scraping the bottom of the barrel and reading deep into uh you know whatever comes off in our fingernails and you know what it can say about the culture and politics of the time Are we right about this? I mean, are there any films that come to mind for you, the listeners that are sort of, you know, contemporary and in the, I don't know, welcome to Mooseport vein? I mean, I would add things like Swing Vote, you know, these kind of politics, what a concept movies. Are we right about this? Tell us on Patreon.
0: I am interested to hear that, and one thing I also want to add, a reason why a movie like specifically Welcome to Mooseport, this kind of ambient, toothless political comedy, isn't made anymore, at least not at the same level. I mean, again, maybe on the Hallmark Channel it is, but certainly you don't see it going to theaters, you don't see it on the front page of Netflix anymore. Another reason is because the perception of politics has changed since then. When Irresistible came out, they're talking about Black Lives Matter. They're talking about Republicans and Democrats, folks. Whereas this movie, where it's just like the president is, oh, he's he's president, president, and he's the president of the presidents. And you got this small town guy who's like, der, Mr. President, you're, uh, uh, gosh, what are you doing in, in this town? Gee whiz. Like, people don't think of the president like that anymore. Oh, also, there would there would be a black character now, or like anyone who isn't white. And that would change the movie, too. It wouldn't be the same movie like this, where just you have a movie that is as white as a Klan rally, and like nothing is perceived as bad or strange about that. Yeah, the, the ensuing 18 years since this movie came out have also rendered movies like this obsolete. Now, it's Hackman versus Romano. Yeah! Time to take your gloves off. Not afraid of you. I can't feel my feet. The big shot. Blood sucking vampire. <laughs> The long shot. Private meeting with the president.
1: We could eliminate him. Are you insane? Thank God you guys are on our side. Welcome to Mooseport. Bringing
0: a man's ex-wife into it. Come on, I know you're there! Rated PG thirteen. Now play.
1: Okay, folks. Well, yeah. Let us know on the Patreon. I'm very curious if anybody can think of uh, a Welcome to Mooseport for 2022, and in doing so, maybe give us our next episode. I'm not sure. But before we sign off, I mean, you've heard us trash this movie for the whole episode. Well, back in uh, February of 2004, the Prophet Roger Ebert sat down and banged out, you know, this very lengthy, I don't know, seven paragraph review of uh, <laughs> Welcome to Mooseport. It looks like it's about (laughs) 500 words. Let's, uh, let's read it from start to finish and see if uh, good old Roger can change our mind.
0: Something I admire about Roger Ebert is the man was a newspaper man. He, he would get an assignment, uh, report the assignment. He'd get there, he'd bang out the article, and probably it took as long to write as it takes to read. And uh, he just had that assembly line going for 40 straight years. So you got to hand it to a guy with that kind of work ethic and uh, productivity. So yes, how does he begin, Luke?
1: To paraphrase Voltaire, after he attended an orgy, <laughs> once was an experience... <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, sorry, he begins, um, I knew a very good poker player who always lost money at bachelor parties. He'd turn a profit in Vegas, but down in the basement with the beer and the cigar smoke, he invariably got cleaned out. The reason he explained was that the jerks he was playing against didn't know how to play poker. They bet on every hand. They raised when they should have folded. You couldn't tell when they were bluffing because they knew so little that they were always bluffing. You know, Roger had a lot of clout at the Chicago Sun Times, but the five paragraphs he submitted, his editor was like, come on, man, you got to give us another 100 words. We can't put this in the paper. So we banged this out. Anyway, I'm sure it has a lot to do with what follows. Gene Hackman plays a character like that in Welcome to Mooseport. The movie isn't about poker, but the principle is the same. He is a former president of the United States who has moved to a colorful (laughs) Maine hamlet. (laughs) Thanks, Roger. Uh, And suddenly finds himself running for mayor. His problem is he knows way too much about politics to run for mayor of Mooseport and way too little about Mooseport. I don't really think that is the plot. Did Roger watch this movie? Uh, (laughs) I like like that he's kind of invented his own movie to write about. (laughs) It sounds much more interesting. Yeah, Yeah, this is the scene at the end of Lost Highway where they're like looking into the TV and they're remembering things their own way. Hackman is one of the most engaging actors on the face of the earth. He's especially good at Bluster. The eagle has landed, he declares, arriving in town. So that, that's the bluster that he's especially good at his name is Monroe the Eagle Cole and don't forget the nickname His opponent in the race is Handy Harrison Ray Romano a plumber who owns the local hardware store Let me get this straight says the Eagle I'm running for mayor against the man who is repairing my toilet.
0: Okay, do we oh. have to read every single bit of plot synopsis here? Can we? Is there a is there a money shot paragraph here that really like drives this shit home?
1: I think that uh, there are only like five or six paragraphs in this, and I th- I I am committed. To giving roger his due and reading all of it okay they're romantic complications handy has been dating local beauty sally manis for seven years without ever having gotten up the nerve to pop the question as the movie opens his face lights up with joy as he races over to tell her he's come into some money and so the time is finally right to buy that pickup when the eagle asks her out to dinner, she accepts. Okay, I really doubled down on the idea of reading every paragraph, but holy shit.
0: Okay, uh, no, 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 hang uh, on. We, let, let's go to the last two paragraphs. This is where he brings it home. There is a genre of movies about outsiders who arrive in small towns and are buffaloed by the guileless locals. Consider David Mamet's State in Maine or the recent Win a Date with Ted, Ted Hamilton. <laughs> Sure, I'll consider them. I'm considering win a date with Tad Hamilton right now. There's always a romance with a local, always a visiting sophisticate who rediscovers traditional values, always a civic booster in a bow tie, always a microphone that deafens everyone with a shriek whenever it's turned on, always an embarrassing public display of dirty laundry, and almost always a Greek chorus of regulars at the local diner-slash-tavern-slash-laundrette who pass judgment on events? Okay, so so far in this review, like the meat of it has been: first, he tells that irrelevant story about like his poker player friend. Then he does plot synopsis. Then he says, "Have you ever noticed this movie's a lot like other movies? What's what's up with that?"
1: <laughs> I I do think, unfortunately, that the paragraph that precedes that is where we get a little bit. I I hate to like wrench us back further oh. <laughs> in this uh, slog, but there is a very sort of early two thousands kind of flourish here where he says he's talking about uh, how Riptor plays the Karl Rove role What a pleasure Torn is. Like Christopher Walken and Steve Buscemi, he makes a smile just by appearing on the screen. Well, I agree. I think Rip Torn is great. Uh, Not in this movie, but I think he's great. Uh, Ebert then writes, His Machiavellian approach to Mooseport is all wrong, however, because the town is so guileless and good-hearted that schemes are invisible to them. We question that such a naive and innocent town could exist in America (laughs) and are almost relieved to find that the movie was shot in Canada. Has it seemed to you lately that Canada is the last remaining repository of the world? Norman Rockwell used to paint. So there's the thesis of it right there. Anyway, well, what's what does he say in the last paragraph? Bring us home here. Whether the movie works or not depends on the charm
0: of the actors. <laughs> Hackman could charm the chrome off a trailer hitch. Romano is more of the earnest, aw-shucks, sincere, well-meaning kind of guy whose charm is inner and only peeks out occasionally. They work well <laughs> together here and Tierney does a heroic job of playing the character who doesn't know how the story will end when everybody else, in the cast and the audience, has an excellent idea. I think this review points out what was wrong with the old model of film criticism, like the, the newspaper review model, which is Yeah, where like you write ev-
1: about like what's actually in the movie and, and like <laughs> write about like the plot and you have some analysis and
0: every movie, no matter whether it was, you know, Shoah or Welcome to Mooseport <laughs> had to have, like, at least seven paragraphs. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes there aren't seven paragraphs worth of stuff for Roger Ebert to say about Welcome to Mooseport. So he's got to kind of, like, tread water with that bullshit story about, like, his poker-playing buddy and his cornball observations about Canada and his, you know, asking us to consider win a date with Tad Hamilton and until basically the last paragraph, which says whatever you need to know. I like the actors. That's what it comes down to.
1: Can I ask you, Will, just before we put this uh, truly atrocious movie to bed, I mean, as as a guy who is, you know, frequently uh, breaking out the Ouija board to commune with Roger Ebert in the afterlife, so you can tell the world uh, how he would rate every movie that's coming out. I mean, can you actually explain to me, as someone who knows Ebert better than I do, like why he would give this movie three stars. Like that is a more interesting question to me than any question raised by the movie itself.
0: There are two responses to that. One is specific to Ebert and one is more about the newspaper film critics in general. Ebert was a very kind marker, particularly in his later years, and he often approached movies, trying to rate movies on their own merits. You know, he would go into a movie and say, well, this is a kind of corny, hack, Hollywood comedy, but on those terms, how good of a corny, hack, Hollywood comedy is it? I don't think he was the kind of critic who would go into a movie like this and say, well, should this movie exist in the first place? His approach was more, this movie exists. How does it perform on its own terms?
1: To which I would say it doesn't, and it's terrible.
0: (laughs) Well, and the other point is, if you're a newspaper critic whose job it is to see every single movie coming out and write about them, I think there comes a point when uh, you see so much bad stuff that you get hungry for anything you might like. And so here comes a movie that has Gene Hackman in it and, and also Ray Romano. Uh, and you think, I, I, I kind of like those guys.
1: Well, I guess as co-host of this podcast, I can uh, relate to that impulse because in the course of discussing this movie, I've talked up Jon Stewart's Irresistible, Kevin Costner's Swing Vote, and whatever the fuck that other one with Jack Lemmon was called. Now watch this guy. My parents live in the same small town